Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The New Statesman. I'm Katie Stallard, and you're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. And then later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Today, I'm speaking to Jeremy Wallace, Associate Professor of Government at Cornell University and author of the new book, Seeking Truth and Hiding Facts ideology, information, and authoritarianism in China. We'll discuss what to look for at next week's party congress in Beijing and what China's GDP growth figures do and do not mean. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us from, I believe, the beautiful city of Ithaca in New York. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So I thought we would start with the Chinese Communist Party's 20th Congress, which is due to get underway on the 16th of October, this coming Sunday, as this episode is going out. And what we expect from Xi Jinping with what I think we we are widely predicting to be the beginning of his third five-year term as the Communist Party's leader. What will you personally be looking for and what do you think the rest of us should be paying attention to? So I think it's important to note how secretive all of this is, that we don't have a lot of sense about what's going to happen. And what will happen is we do know the start date. Other than that, we don't know a lot. We don't know how long it will take, how long they will remain in their enclave, their meetings. But we expect it'll probably be about a week. And then there will be this emergence where the the new Politburo Standing Committee, almost certainly seven Han men, probably wearing all the same dark suit, will emerge from a room. Xi Jinping will probably be in the center of that room. And he may, as he did 10 years ago, give some remarks about kind of China's general problems or the sense that he thinks about China will have for the future. One of the things that we sometimes pay attention to is who who is standing next to him. And we look at the biographies of these individuals, their connections to Xi, and people will make assessments and try to figure out is this someone, oh, she did better than expected because his people were installed in the Politburo Standing Committee more than expected, or the opposite, maybe the pushback against she has begun. And the I, while I think it's interesting and does have some predictive power, there's a lot of uncertainty about these kind of assessments. And so what I'll be really paying attention to is 
in the middle of the Congress, the National Bureau of Statistics is set to release a series of economic data, including GDP data for the past quarter. And I think that these numbers will actually tell us a lot more about the situation that China and these political leaders find themselves in and where policy direction is likely to go in the near future. Are there specific numbers or targets or ranges that you would or maybe would not be expecting to see this time? We should see the kind of the king of figures in Chinese statistics is GDP and has been for quite a while. And we should see a GDP statistic for the third quarter of 2022 coming out at this this briefing. All expectations are that this will be a a not so great number, that this will this will confirm that the country is unlikely to or it is going to be impossible to meet its growth target for the year. In March, the growth target was set at 5.5 percent growth for the year. And it seems very unlikely, given the covid lockdowns in particular, the Shanghai lockdown and so on that China will not be able to meet this this target. And so this number coming out of confirming that in the middle of this meeting, to me, suggests that there will be this moment of contemplation inside the rooms of the Congress. Will there be a decision to change direction, to move away from COVID-0 policies? Will there be debates about how they should think about Xi's common prosperity agenda or the issues about the real estate kind of regulation and deregulation. So I think these numbers will will inform a lot about these debates and I think are important to consider. Your research and your latest book really looks at the importance of these numbers. Can you explain to us a little bit about why, in particular, measures like the GDP growth rate have become so important to the Chinese political system, and in particular, I get it, to the party's claim to legitimacy? I think of this history as connected to Chinese political history in general, that the Chinese, from imperial times, Chinese governments have been precocious in collecting lots of data and trying to understand their societies or the territories that they ruled. In the PRC, under Mao, there was a lot of data collection as well, and including massive falsification of data. And so the idea of collecting numbers and numbers being significant is like part and parcel of the Chinese Communist Party rule. What I think of as the origins of this particular story, especially GDP, but more broadly, development statistics in general are kind of part of the transition away from Maoist rule towards what we refer to as the reform era, the post-Mao era. And I think of this as, as a way to clarify and provide transparency inside of the regime as well as outside of the regime about what leaders are expected to do and how they are expected to perform. The way that I talk about this is a limited quantified vision. That is that the central state was not going to observe every leader and try to stare down at their into their hearts and try to make sure that they believed in the Maoist vision in the same way that they had under Mao in the 1970s, but that instead was going to kind of step back, try to look at the actual outcomes of their activities, their actions. And in particular, they were not going to look at everywhere. They were really going to look at production, at overall economic activity, and ultimately GDP, and that this was going to be the core. And that this kind of like limited vision encouraged and of like directed activity at the local level in a way that 
was quite productive. If you really tell students or you tell officials, you tell bureaucrats, this is what we're going to measure, you often get very good performance on those measurements. Whether or not everything else falls apart on the side is, is I think, the, the China has faced, that this limited quantified vision worked very well, rapid development. But over time, the kind of things outside of that vision, the problems festered. And I think that's uh, the situation that that she faced uh, coming into power uh, in a decade ago, and increasingly has tried to navigate this kind of trade-off between like development and the continued need for development in what is still, in many ways, a poor country, and kind of other priorities and dealing with the problems that that singular focus on development has caused. What are some of these the festering problems? You refer to it in, in your book as the blind spot that have emerged or become apparent during Xi's period in office. The blind spots or these festering problems are probably most notably is corruption. It's not if you're trying to develop and you're trying to build in order to produce GDP, in order to have, as a local official, increase your chances for promotion. If that kind of in no one's paying attention that closely to who you're giving the contracts to, then maybe you can give the contract to your brother or your brother's friend or, or so on along these lines and a weakened corruption problems that similarly pollution or environmental issues, things that, that these are all negative externalities of this system of focusing on, on development. You even have the problem of falsification, which is how I got into the, the project to begin with, that uh, we all know to take Chinese statistics with a grain of salt, but actually establishing the patterns of falsification in the data is a, is a much harder thing, because if you're falsifying data, the last thing you want to be is caught. You want to kind of do this smoothly so no one knows. And so trying to figure out these patterns and establish those was how I got into this work. But the kind of the more I kind of stared at the power of numbers inside of China's politics, I realized that it wasn't just about falsification. The the story was broader, that things that could be quantified would be attacked and dealt with, and things that kind of couldn't kind of tended to be ignored. And that this to me, it seemed like a nice way to re, kind of re-examine reform era politics in China. What did you find? What were you able to uncover about these patterns of falsification? The hard thing about thinking about falsification is, one, if you only have data from that state, the state that is falsifying data, then maybe everything is falsified. And maybe everything is falsified the same way over time. And what I suggested in my research is that some data are more likely to be falsified than others because they're more critical to evaluation, such as GDP, but also that sometimes are more politically sensitive than others. And so that if we look at the pattern of falsification, you should be able to find differences between kind of different series, things like electricity consumption that tracks GDP or overall economic activity very closely. And that in particular moments, especially when there's leadership turnover, um, you do find that there are these kind of like jumps, the GDP, reported GDP kind of jumps around these political cycles at the local level in China. So uh, this work has been confirmed by lots of different um, scholars in different ways at the national level. We know the dictatorships falsify GDP uh, more than democracies, or at least they have very different patterns of connections between GDP and things like nighttime lights. That is the satellite imagery of countries and like democracies tend to look brighter than dictatorships with the same level of GDP per capita. And the association there is that it's probably this falsification story. 
Similarly, we know that there's falsification in all kinds of different domains. So blue sky data, the pollution is really gray and industrial data, all kinds of data, tax data. And so these, this, this falsification story is a relatively important general one, but I think that it is kind of opened this lens that, that quantification and numbers just became so central to the way I thought about Chinese politics. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From The New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including... The historian Colin Kidd on Watergate's renewed relevance in a post-Trump era. Today's obsessions about a deep state took their rise in the 70s amid this climate of anxiety. Jeff Dyer's reflections on how to grow old in America. He was propped up in bed, proudly sporting a badge. Private medicine makes me sick. Maria Vilcek tells the story of how the hard men of Belarusian football took on Alexander Lukashenko. Hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Let me ask you one very um, potentially idiotic question, which is, uh, given the propensity for falsification, what is the use of these numbers? Is there a value they 
serve despite the falsification. One of the ways that I think about this is that the leaders know that this is happening. Li Keqiang famously, in a document that was released by WikiLeaks, talked about these numbers are man-made. Um, and uh, the story goes, um, Li Keqiang said smiling. And that smiling, I think, is really indicative of the extent to which they are aware of this problem and think about it. And so he, he suggested in that kind of discussion that there are other statistics that he looks at that are more reliable. But I think more than that, it's the knowingness suggests to me that this is all part of a, a, a game that is being played, that you as a local official know that you're supposed to hit these numbers, but not go too far in hitting these numbers. And so it's a suggestive of an ability to control the bureaucrats underneath your domain, communications up above to those. It's, a, it's about sophistication. It's about communication. So what I think about the 20th Party Congress and the numbers that are becoming out, I don't think that they're just going to decide what the number should be and just give that number regardless of what the facts are, because falsification is a dangerous thing. If it becomes known and is commonly believed that all of the numbers are useless and totally disconnected from reality, then they stop being useful and investors get scared, real estate purchasers get scared, everyone gets scared economically about what is what is reality. And so I think that there is this pushback against falsification. And so it exists inside of the system, but it's mostly a communicative game between leaders trying to signal that they understand how everything is played and they know how to get things done. At the same time, in another section of the book, one of the things that I find is that if you as a local official have connections to someone higher above you, you're actually less likely to falsify. Because in the end, falsification is a relatively risky strategy. It's a, it's a dangerous game to be playing. And so if you think that you have good chances for promotion or good connections to higher levels already, then you're less likely to engage in that that risky behavior. And you mentioned earlier about effectively what, what can be measured is then what can be sold. Have we seen shifts in those priorities under Xi Jinping? I'm thinking particularly in terms of perhaps targets around environmental priorities as well as you know, straight GDP growth targets. So I think the expansion of targets really um, took off under the Hu Jintao, Wen Xiaobao period that you see these cadre evaluation kind of like these like annual reports that cadres or officials are kind of assessed on kind of growing and growing longer and longer as the number of, of different assessments, different items that they have to hit, including environmental targets. But economic activities still remain the dominant piece and remained the, the core of the energy. I think what, I think that that leadership team understood that something had to change but in 2007, 2008, the global financial crisis hit and they kind of reverted back to their normal kind of like stimulus, build, build, build type of economic activity uh, as a way to, to deal with a potential real political crisis that the regime was facing. Um, and so they weren't able to really deeply shift away from this political model of development um, above all or GDPism. Under Xi, by 2012, I think you have a real kind of lots of debates about what should the focus be. There's an acknowledgement of the problems. So when Xi comes into power, in some ways, China is kind of at the height. It seems like things are going very, very well because the rest of the world is suffering 
under the weight of the global financial crisis. China, because of its massive stimulus, light of GD in GDP terms, looks very strong. Um, but I think underneath that, there was a recognition that there was a lot of weakness, a lot of kind of decay, and that this model was no longer tenable. The debt levels in particular just had been growing and growing. And so I think it's only under Xi Jinping that we get a real kind of like shift in political terms that changes the calculations and activities of local officials, that they are kind of even their assessments, the assessment reports look about the same, but their actual activities and practices change because of all of the anti-corruption activities and other kind of like centralization of power that that she puts forward. How much of the audience for these figures is domestic and how much in over, overseas? So you, you talk in the book about quantification as a tool of the persuasive arsenal through which the regime explains to the, their citizens why they need to be in power. So I guess that is one audience, but is it also about promoting China's model overseas and t- a way to telegraph China's success? Absolutely. The Chinese regime, I think, always considers its domestic audience first, and maybe even beyond the domestic kind of like society, it thinks of itself and the party itself, the the millions of, of cadres up and down the system, and to remain, for them to remain invested. And I think that audience is is real, but the external audiences as well. This is a, a government that considers for an investment extremely important or has considered foreign investment extremely important and thinks of itself, um, it knows that its economic weight, its economic size is part of its part of the reason that people are willing to accommodate it and its demands um, to get access to its markets, um, to kind of deal with it despite all the regulations and, and, and issues that you might have. And so I think it is always cognizant of this external audience as well. I think you saw this this past year, this kind of GDP target coming back into play, which had not the the regime had not had for two years. It didn't. It, in twenty twenty under COVID, they decided they were not going to have a GDP target because they didn't know the the shape of the pandemic. In twenty twenty one, they set a floor for GDP growth of six percent and exceeded that um, by quite a large margin to eight percent growth, but. This year, they did put in this target. And I think one of the reasons that we can think about why they did so was in the fourth quarter of last year, Joe Biden had gave a speech where he said that the United States has grown faster than China. And that I think this geopolitical kind of like competition or kind of idea that China is the rapidly growing kind of rising power is part of the, the narrative that the regime has or the leaders inside of it have, and that they are a little... I don't know, concerned, maybe not scared, but perhaps concerned about what that, what that will mean if that goes away, if they, if their growth is slowing and that they're no longer going to, to surpass the United States in size of their economy, which is, is something that I think they always assumed was going to happen. Um, but increasingly is looking less likely. One last question, which, uh, you, you mentioned it there, but just how you saw this play out in real life during the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, the part of the title of the book is hiding facts. What did you see in terms of both the weaknesses and the strengths of the system during that crisis? And I, I mean, I guess it's as it, as it continues to, 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 uh, to unfold. For me as an author, 
to write a book about the politics of numbers in China. And I was finishing the book as the, as the pandemic hit. It, it became too obvious and too significant to, to, to ignore. And so the book has a, the conclusion has a long section and kind of like dive into thinking about the politics of numbers in COVID. And I think you can think of this in a couple of different ways. The first is the initial kind of outbreak of the pandemic. Um, in some ways, I mean, remember that the virus is called SARS, um, COV2, because literally we have been very familiar with this type of problem in China. And so China built a institutional apparatus to try to deal with this exact problem, which never happens. You never have the same problem happen again. It's always something else. But in this case, they literally built exactly what they wanted to do in terms of an informing the center about kind of viral outbreaks. And yet that system failed because local officials, like it was inconvenient for them. They didn't want to report these bad things about their own localities. And so they tried to hide that data. It took the center's three investigation teams before they really were figuring out what was happening. And so, and this moment, again, we think of China as this relative success case in terms of the virus, because even though it started there, they were very successful at stamping out the disease. But that I think you can see as a, there was a real moment at the beginning of the crisis, particularly when the doctor, Li Wenliang, died, who was a whistleblower. And I think there was real fury in the country. And it was only the, the kind of quick decline in COVID numbers domestically, as well as their explosion globally, that allowed the regime to like ride that wave, what would have been quite dangerous. The other version of the story is what's happening today, which is the zero COVID is, I, I think about it as a catastrophic success. Zero COVID has saved millions of lives, I think, inside of, of China. And that should not be ignored. In that sense, it is absolutely a success. This kind of singular focus on a particular number, that is cases, has, has been extremely successful, but it has caused problems kind of like ancillary to that, like a reaching that one number. And so in that way, fits with this GDP story, kind of like focusing on development, focusing on this singular number, but kind of ignoring or downplaying these, uh, these other effects, the downsides outside of that, that singular vision. And I think over time, especially with the lockdowns that have like um, bewildered Chinese cities in 2022, it's increasingly clear that the the downsides of this kind of like singular focus are becoming overwhelming and the need to kind of like rebalance and kind of like think back about this initial decision is is something that I think that I imagine they'll be doing at the party congress. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap this up. Um, Jeremy Wallace, thank you so much for joining us and, and congratulations on the book. It's a really fascinating read. Thank you so much. This has been the World Review from the New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage on our website, newstatesman.com. And if you want to hear more about Chinese politics, you can listen to our special three-part series, China Under Xi, available right here on the World Review podcast feed. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate us. And for bonus points, please consider leaving us a nice review. The producer has been Adrian Bradley. The team will be back later in the week. I'm Katie Stucklard. Thanks for listening and until next time.
Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.